Father, uh, I pray that you be with me this morning and help me to um, just be faithful to this text, which is, is kind of sticky and, and not that easy. And I pray that you would help me to be um, um, clear and, and help my memory to be better than I, I sort of expect it to be this morning. And um, Lord God, even though we're kind of few, I pray that, that your word would uh, find places to take root and, and produce a harvest, Lord. I pray that um, all the folks who are not with us this morning, who are snowed in or, or traveling or, or have sick family or what have you, I pray that you would uh, bless them and, and help them through this time. And I pray that uh, pray that you would help us to know how to minister to our brothers and sisters. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, so this morning, I, well, I'm going to give you a little background here. When I, uh, when I write sermons, usually I do a lot of research, and um, illustrations either happen when I stand up uh, and start talking, or uh, the morning of most of the time. And, and this morning I was, I was having trouble, because this is an odd text. We're going to be looking at Stephen's trial, uh, Steve's trial before the uh, Sanhedrin. And we're actually only going to do half the speech. Um, it is a long speech. Otherwise, this would be a 57-verse sermon, which is a lot of text. Um, and we all know how I am, and I'm already starting at 5 after 11.30. So, you know, I, I, I got until kickoff, I think, right? And then everybody will walk out. Um, <laughs> but I, I – so this morning I sat down, and I was trying to wrestle with this text, and it's, it's kind of difficult, and it's difficult to know how to engage it. And I, I was scanning through my social media. Sometimes stuff will jump out at me. And I, I read an article by a uh, columnist from the L.A. Times. Um, and it's a political article. And so I'm going to vaguely address that, but I don't want to talk about politics. It's not the point. Um, this gal is a, uh, is a columnist, and she is currently living in a different home because of COVID. So she, I don't know if it, she's renting or if she's in a second home, which seems kind of weird. But she's living in a separate home. And her next-door neighbor is a strong, vocal, political individual um, who covered their lawns with signs during the last election. And she has grown to reach a place where she does not like them as a result of their political beliefs. Um, over the weekend, it snowed where she lives, and they had several feet of snowfall. And the neighbor did something really offensive – he plowed her driveway without asking or even addressing it with her. Not only did he plow her driveway, he did a really, really good job um, having thoroughly cleared the snow. And she was stuck in this place where she didn't know what to do because the neighbor did something nice, but they're horrible people. She doesn't know them. She doesn't visit with them. She doesn't talk with them, but they're horrible people because of what they believe. Politically. Um, and, and I think what was the aggressive kindness was the word that she used. It was an affront to her because they used aggressive kindness. And, and the thing that jumped out at me um, was, uh, number one, that she compared them to Nazi sympathizers and how you couldn't like Nazi sympathizers like during World War II because they were evil and in the same way she can't like these people. Um, but the thing that jumped out of me, at me was, and, and hear me when I say this, her assumption was, like what, what really stuck her and made her have to write this article before she talked to them about the plowing, 
<laughs> she was like, all right, well, I guess I got to go say thank you. But at the time of publishing the article, she hadn't said thank you yet. <laughs> so, like, the, the L.A. Times knew about it, but the neighbors don't. Um, the thing that jumped out at me was that she looked at the situation. She said, good cannot come out of this no matter what. There's no way the world can be good in this way. It must fall according to my mindset regarding how the world is. That's important because it's a hard mindset, mindset to grasp. There are times we might look at someone. Actually, the story of the Good Samaritan is that, where we look at the Samaritan and Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them. Samaritan is a good word here. In ancient Israel, you often would spit when you said ancient or Samaritan because it was such a horrible thing. If you walked through Samaria, when you got to the edge of the country, you would kick the dust off of your feet, right? So you didn't accidentally take some of that dirt from Samaritan land into your own country. Like, they super hated them. They called them dogs. They, you know, they were, they were not considered a class of neighbor. I mean, like, this mindset of it cannot work any other way. And this is where the judges are at in Stephen's trial. Okay? And Stephen is about to deliver a very difficult to understand speech by our standards. But in ancient Israel, what he's saying is dead on clear. Got it? So I'm going to unpack it a little bit, but like, like follow me here. So Stephen is arrested. He's arrested because they're debating with him, and he is owning them every time they debate. By the way, one of the people who is probably debating with him is the Apostle Paul. And like Paul is a heck of an arguer, and Stephen's owning him. And so like Stephen is a man full of wisdom and grace, and he is brought to this place where he is on trial. He's been, they seize him with false accusations. That he says, you know, he speaks out against the temple and says he's going to tear it down and that he blasphemes against God and he's going to get rid of the laws of Moses and everything else. And so they bring him in and um, they bring him and they put him in front of the Sanhedrin. And what it would have been is this big U-shaped like seating area, right? And there would have been um, all of these, these different rabbis and leaders and priests and whatnot sitting up there. And they would have started questioning him. And so the high priest asks his question. Um, and we, this is where we ended last week. Are these charges true? Which is a yes or no question. And Stephen, clearly a preacher by nature, doesn't give a single answer, a single word answer. He launches into a speech about Jewish history. Has anybody read this text on their own? Man, he is like, I mean, he's a better rabbit trailer than I am. Um, and it seems hard to understand because it is so out there until you recognize what he's doing. And we're going to dig into this. I'm going to try and do it quickly, but I'm going to try and do it thoroughly. Everybody with me still? Quickly and thoroughly. That's all anybody has heard so far. Um, to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Brothers, by the way, he is making it very clear because like Stephen, remember, he's not a Hebrew Jew. He is a Hellenist Jew, right? But he's still acknowledging we're in the same team. We are brothers as Jews, right? Like we are, we are um, brothers in the tribe and fathers, which by the way, he is being very respectful. He's referring to these guys as fathers, like they are the leaders and they are in a position of honor because fathers was a very honorable position back then. Just listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham 
while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So, we're going to pause here. Watch this. Um, he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish religion, number one. And so you can see everybody like, oh my gosh, is he really going to do this? But what's important here is, and there's going to be two themes in this talk, right? The first theme is God does huge stuff in places that are not Israel. Like, does he do huge stuff in Israel? Absolutely. Um, does he also do huge stuff elsewhere? Yes. Does God appear in his glory and do awesome stuff in places that aren't the temple? Yep. But, but, now get this. The reason, part of the charges they're raising against him is he has spoken against God. The assumption at this time in ancient Israel was if you speak against the temple or if you don't honor the temple as God, it is speaking against God because it is the dwelling place of God. So they had elevated the temple to a place of on par with God, right? And in fact, actually, it was a common practice. People would swear by the gold in the temple, right? Because they had idol, they created an idol out of the temple is really what had happened. The temple was everything. And to perceive that God could do something outside of the temple, it's like believing that your politically affiliated neighbor can be nice just for the sake of being nice. It's, it's inconceivable, and I do know what that word means, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> so God, in this place, he's in Mesopotamia. Like, God goes to Abraham, like, in Mesopotamia, in pagan land, right? It, it is the modern equivalent of California. Um, I'm sorry. I know. That was awful. I shouldn't have said that. I, I apologize. My wife is going to yell at me later. Um, so in pagan land... Um, he, he comes to Abraham and he says, hey, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So God has Abraham move several times and things happen, but they happen before he's even arrived in the promised land. Like God is working in his life in a place that isn't here. Um, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Um, he gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. So Abraham, by the end of his life, doesn't even own any of the promised land. Now, understand, like he is Father Abraham, right? Abraham is, like Moses is kind of the rock star, but Abraham is kind of the Elvis of, of the Jewish religion. He is up there, and they revere Abraham. They consider themselves to be children of Abraham. And so, like, Abraham didn't even live here. He didn't even own this part. He didn't inherit any of it. Not even enough place to put his foot. But God promised him that his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So he acknowledges, listen, this promise and everything else, like he is giving him this huge acknowledgement, but it's all happening outside of Abraham's possession of the land. Um. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. 
Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So Abraham doesn't inherit the land, right? Doesn't, you know, there's no temple, there's no nothing, but God is blessing him, and God is taking care of him. And then we follow this promise through with circumcision, right? Because that's how Jewish folks, and I, I, I've never figured out how they knew each other were circumcised, but, like, that's how you knew that the other guy was Jewish, is he was circumcised. And so, like, like this traveling down, and circumcision is a big deal to the Jewish folks. That's going to come back into play later in this talk, but not this talk, but in Stephen's talk. So we're going to get there. Oh, my gosh, it's so much stuff. It is a lot of history, right? So we go on. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Now, there are two themes, right? I mentioned one. God is working in huge ways in places that aren't the promised land. And the second theme is that God's people often reject the guy that God sends to deliver them. You all with me? And so Joseph shows up, and Joseph is the one, right? He had a coat of many colors. Um, he, he was you know, shown through dreams that the others would bow down to him, and they didn't like that. They didn't like that he was the favorite. They didn't like that God was choosing him, and so they uh, went to kill him, and instead they sold him into slavery, figuring they would get money out of the deal. Um, and so Abraham, or excuse me, Joseph is sold into slavery. He's rejected by his brothers, by the tribes. Um, he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told the brothers who he was, and the Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. We're going to hit pause here. And this is funny, because there's so many crazy details he could include in this story, right? I mean, you all know the story of Joseph and the slavery and Potiphar and jail and interpreting dreams and everything else. And he glosses over all of that and jumps to, they visited once and they visited a second time. Isn't that crazy? Why would you include a detail like that? On purpose is the answer. Because he's playing off of something that Peter said to the Sanhedrin the first time round. God's messenger showed up, the Messiah showed up, and you rejected him. I'm here the second time, and I'm telling you about him. Are you going to reject him again? Right? Because that's what Peter said to him. And now here we have Stephen standing before him saying, Hey, just like the patriarchs, you guys rejected Jesus the first time. You rejected your brother Joseph, right? You're playing the same game. And Jesus was here, and you killed him. You killed him. And remember, this is a recurring thing. Like the Sanhedrin says, hey, are you really going to make us guilty of this guy's blood? Like they're not happy about this prospect. And he says, listen, on the second visit, then he told him who, they, who he was. Then he explained the deal. Um, after this, Joseph sent for his father and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his ancestors had died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb 
that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Now, here is a funny little thing again, because there's more of this. Number one, they're in the promised land, and the promised land is famine-ridden. Where are they given deliverance? Egypt. (laughs) Where does salvation come from? Egypt. And from the brother they rejected, right? And so he is laying out this whole, like, story where he is telling the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, you guys rejected him because you thought salvation only comes from the temple. It only comes from the stuff you expect it to come from. But in reality, salvation came from Christ, and you didn't see it. You rejected him. Now I'm here a second time. Listen. The time has come. Be saved. Turn. Don't die in the famine, this spiritual death that is surrounding you. And so then, like, Jacob dies, and he's buried in a tomb. Um, And and here's the funny thing. It's in uh, Shechem that he's buried. Now, this is a funny thing because eventually he ends up actually buried in the promised land, right? But temporarily, he's buried in the land of the Philistines. And actually, when he says this, he's like basically sticking a finger in their eye like he didn't even make it to the promised land. He was buried in the land of the Philistines. You remember? The Philistines. (laughs) Right? Because that name puts a bad taste in my mouth. Um. (laughs) Um, I, I sometimes wonder why we don't do that. Like IRS, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no amen for that. <laughs> um, so the, they were buried in a place that wasn't even the promised land and they had to buy it. Right? Like it wasn't even something they inherited. They had to buy it. Um, what's the point? The point is, guys, you're looking for blessing somewhere that you're not going to find it. Right? And this is a really passive speech at this point. All he's doing is laying out facts in a way that make it really clear what he's saying. The second half of this talk, which we're going to do next week, is where he starts taking out like the hammer and pounding on him. Right? I know it's a long one. Um, <laughs> so, as time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. And so we come back to hardship, and then we're going to go to deliverance, right? Because hardship and deliverance is the theme of this. Um, At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. The Hebrew actually says he was beautiful to God, right? Um, where he made Joseph parallel Jesus, Moses is going to parallel Jesus, right? Um, that's, not in, uh, that's not in the original text. There's nowhere where Moses is called beautiful to God except here. So it's kind of an interesting little tidbit. Um, for three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. So where is Moses blessed? In the home of our enemies? So God does great things somewhere we don't expect him to? See the thing he is, and actually, like, like he is intentionally, these guys are experts. They know this history backward and forward, and they know what he's saying. And he is, he is, he's owning them over and over and over again. 
Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So the first 40 years of his life, he is in the, uh, the, the Pharaoh's home, and he goes and he sees his own people. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, your brothers, why do you hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So watch this. Um, the deliverer goes to his own people and begins to act on their behalf, and they they reject him, just like Jesus is rejected. And what he's doing here, right, because he's saying, these guys are saying to him, listen, is it true that you attacked God and the temple and you're going to do away with the, the sons of Moses or the, the traditions of Moses? And he turns around and he's saying, listen, you people think, that this temple is everything and you idolize it and you worship the temple but not God. You think God can't act anywhere else and you think God only acts the way you want him to. And in reality, you rejected his man the same way all these other guys did. You're no different than the rest of Israel. You're no different. You don't believe that God can act anywhere but here. And in reality, God does whatever the heck he wants because he's God. He's the God of glory. It's actually the phrase he started the sermon with, or the defense in court. Um, but, like, the God of glory can manifest his glory everywhere. And that's what he does. So in Egypt, he manifests his glory. He manifests it in Mesopotamia and, and everywhere else. And the only place he hasn't mentioned God manifesting his glory is Israel or the temple. Like, he's drawing out the fact that these guys are hypocrites. And they're sitting there listening and saying, no, people I disagree with can't be good people. You can't be right. It doesn't matter what God does. Only my way. After 40, oh, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. Again, or excuse me, in the desert near Mount Sinai. You know where Mount Sinai isn't? The promised land. Then he saw this, and he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am, God of your, I am the God of your fathers, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, Moses trembled with fear, and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The holy ground is not in Israel, right? Again, he's emphasizing this on purpose, because he's telling these guys, God is holy, like wherever God is, is where is holy. Wherever God is acting is where his glory is. And whoever he picks is the man he sent. Then the Lord said to him, oh, I'm sorry, I read that part. I have heard their groaning. Excuse me. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. So Moses goes a second time. Right? As 
as our speaker, Steve, is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the second appearance of Christ to them, right? Like, hey, listen to me. I am talking. I'm telling you the truth here. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Where are the wonders and signs happening? Everywhere except the promised land at this point. Um, And the point being, guys, God can do what he wants. Try not, you know, like stop forcing him into your perspective and let God be God. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? Who they rejected the first time. And the second time around, he says, here it is. Are you going to reject it again? He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received the living words to pass on to us. This is the thing that he's being accused of tearing down, by the way, these living words to pass on to us. Last slide, and I'm almost done. (laughs) And then we have communion. Um, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. I already read that one. Okay, let's back up. That was my last slide. Um, So what do we do with this? Um, Well, again, Stephen's two main themes, right? Um, The first one is God can act where he wants to act. God can use who he wants to use. God can move in the way he wants to move. The folks who were in leadership in Israel at the time did not consider it possible that God could show up as a man, right? Like they didn't think it was possible. They didn't think it was possible that that this man could show up and not be on their team, right? Like I I, I always think it's funny um, when you talk to pastors, you know, you say, well, why, why did you move to another church? And they'll say, oh, I felt like God was calling me to go somewhere else. And I, I've noticed pastors never get called to go somewhere where they get paid less money or work for a smaller church. It's, it's true, isn't it? Like, <laughs> because God always wants to do what I want to do. Because a lot of times God is me. And in reality, a lot of times we pursue God in our own perspective. Or we look at someone and we say, you cannot do right. You cannot be better. You cannot be the person God calls. You cannot be the person God chose. You cannot do this. It is not possible. One of my favorite preachers um, ever, ever, I have known in my lifetime, was a former Hell's Angel um, who, <laughs> who he, was, he was something, right? But you'd look at this guy and you'd think, that guy has nothing to say to me. But man, he was profound. Man, he loved Jesus. And in reality, God will use whoever he wants to use. Um, God sent Christ. We want God to either let us have a pass and never ask anything of us, right? Or we want God to kill the bad guys and, and bless us, right? Or, or what have you. Like we never, ever look to God and say, I need you to pour out your son's blood for my, for my sake. You know, it's easy to get lost in the idea that the church is this building. 
And in reality, this building is the training facility that we put you all through so that you can be the church in the community. I still, I tell my kids that. I told my son that this morning. What are we doing today? We're going to church, right? This isn't the church. This is our building, right? Our job, the church, exists wherever the body is. Our ministry isn't in here, right? It's out there. Right now, the ministry that does the most work with lost people in this community, do you know which one it is? It's the youth ministry. Actually, the food bank might, might have it. Yeah, actually, you, you might have me there. I didn't think of the food bank. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> um, but even then, the food bank, I mean, like everything we do like that is outside of the building, like it is – it is a huge deal that we support and stand around these ministries, right? Because our job, our calling is to serve people who are lost. It's easy to get into this mindset that the church exists for me, right? I want the right kind of music. I want the right kind of food. I want the sermons to be a certain length. I want Eric to dress a certain way. You know, and I know I, I kill it. Um, I want these things, but in reality, guys... This building is here to train you. The work, the work happens outside of this place, and it happens in the lives of the folks around you, right? Every one of us, if God has given us something, we're supposed to be giving it to the guy next to us. If God has helped me, that is, I talk about it all the time, but like getting over, like recovery from alcohol uh, addiction and, and that, that horrible, miserable time of my life, I went through that, and God redeemed me from that so that I can help other people, not so that I can look awesome, right? Um, God has brought some of y'all through horrible, difficult, miserable circumstances so you can stand next to other folks and help them walk through the same thing, right? God has sometimes puts us in awful places so that the folks around us can gather around and pray with us and love us and minister to us, and that's what we're here for. Sometimes we exist to be ministered to. That is the hardest thing in the world. Anybody ever feel that way? I do not want somebody coming and fixing my house. It's not even my house. It's y'all's house. And I don't want that. (laughs) Because I should do it myself. But in reality, like, guys, the body of Christ, the church itself is elsewhere. Um, And ultimately what we discover is we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit goes with me. I, I don't know anything about who the neighbor was, except that I know their politics. But I know they plowed the neighbor's driveway who hated them. And I think they actually got into a war between them, like putting out signs and stuff like that. And I think she wrote another column real nasty about them and their political signs. <laughs> like, like, if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Like, like but these guys, they, they served their neighbor and loved them, Right? That's who we are, guys. That's what we're here for. As we, uh, as we finish up this week, I don't even know. I guess we'll do the line, but it'll be a fairly short communion this morning because there's like eight of us or 12. Um, one of the things that seems hardest to understand and actually was a huge stumbling block in the ancient world um, is that one of the ways that we encounter Christ one of the ways that we experience Christ is through this, through this ordinance, through this, this meal that we share together, where we take the body and the blood of Christ and we ingest them and we remember that I am saved 
not because I'm good, not because I'm wonderful, not because God fawns over me at every single moment, not because of any of that. I'm saved because God's most precious son died for me. And I, I, how great the Father's love for us, I appreciate that that's the song you picked because there's a line in there that I just rings in my head all the time. Like, I'll, I'll pray and I'll think of this. Like, uh, um, you know, the, I hear my mocking voice, right? Like, my sin yells crucify louder than the mob did that day. Christ died for me. And I have to not only, like, say I believe it, not only say a prayer, but i got to take it inside me and make it a part of who I am. It's got to melt my wicked, hard heart. It's got to take seed and grow into something amazing. I pray that I get to be the guy who waters that in y'all's lives. But this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you come on up, I guess, do we need to do rows? There's not that many of us here, and I think most of us have had COVID now. Um, <laughs> um, so if you want to, oh, do you want me to shut it off? If you want to come up and, and line up and, and take the Lord's Supper with us, um, you know, join us as we do this. In our church, we don't require confessions of faith or anything like that. You need to be a believer in Christ to take communion with us. Um, The body and blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood shed for you. The body and blood shed for you. Um, we're going to close in prayer. I want to say thank you for being with us this morning. And my challenge for you is just to look at your life, look at your heart, look at look at everything you assume and ask, like, am, am I assuming God can't? Like, am I looking to something other than Christ to be my guidance about what, you know, about what I'm supposed to be? Is it is it my, you know, my political signs in the yard or the ones in my neighbor's yard? Is it, you know, my assumptions about, about the building? Is it my my assumptions about my country, is it whatever, I mean, whatever it is, like what's getting, you know, what, the worst place to end up in life is where we reject Christ in favor of some idol. You know, what are our idols? Let's close in prayer. And remember, wherever Christ sends you, you can bring him glory. Heavenly Father, I, we live as strangers in a strange land. We we live in a world that, that um, is increasingly hostile to to you and your glory. Help us to remember that, that when they reject um, the word, when they reject Christ, they're rejecting you, not us. Lord God, I pray that we would love our neighbors um, even when they hate us, even when they, they assume that nothing good can come out of us. I pray that you would help us to be Christ to the folks we encounter. And I pray that the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in us, Lord God, that it would, you know, we would be good vessels, that we would be good deliverers of your glory 
of your gospel and of your grace. In Christ's name I pray.